Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, suicide, and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was midnight in Albany, New York, when 40-year-old Barbara Boucher woke up to the sound of somebody frantically knocking on her door. According to CBC journalist Josh Block, Barbara was stunned to see 40-year-old Keith Ranieri on the other side. He was crying, his words coming in broken fragments as he told her that there was a problem. He'd lost it, all $50,000. His foolproof investment plan had failed. Barbara didn't see how that could be possible. She had joined Nexium because Keith was the smartest man in the world. Still, despite her alarm, Barbara tempered her nerves. $50,000 was a significant sum, but it wouldn't ruin her. But Keith shook his head. It was more than that. They owed the commodities broker $600,000. Barbara was in shock. They? Yes, Keith said. They owed the money because the accounts were in her name. She was the one on the hook for 600 grand. Barbara had come from nothing. She'd put herself through college and decades of arduous work. $600,000 was almost half of her life savings, but there was nothing to be done for it. So Barbara ponied up the funds and hoped that would be the end. It wasn't. By the time Keith was finished, he'd bet and lost all $1.6 million of the money Barbara worked her entire life to earn. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This is our second episode in a deep dive into a modern cult called Nexium. The group made headlines for reportedly physically branding its celebrity-laden membership and coercing them into being sex slaves, all to satisfy its narcissistic leader, Keith Ranieri. In this episode, we'll explore the early days of Nexium. We'll detail how and why Keith Ranieri convinced two billionaire heiresses to join the growing group. Finally, we'll cover how he manipulated them into spending their fortune on him. Over the course of the next two episodes, we'll cover actress Alison Mack's rise as Keith Ranieri's right-hand woman. And finally, we'll detail Nexium's notorious collapse. We've got all this and more coming up. Stay with us. By 1999, 39-year-old Keith Ranieri had shuttered his first company, Consumers Byline, after it was hounded with accusations of fraud. And his longtime girlfriend, 41-year-old Tony Natale, had finally broken off their relationship for good, fed up with his abuse. Keith had already moved on. He had a different business scheme in mind and a brand new woman in his life, Nancy Salzman. With her input, Keith was able to craft Executive Success Programs, or ESP. 
Like Consumers Byline, ESP was a multi-level marketing company. Except instead of selling discounted household products, Keith's new venture sold self-improvement classes. Keith claimed that ESP's technology could coach actresses into delivering Oscar-worthy performances, athletes into meddling at the Olympics, and filmmakers into producing Alfred Hitchcock-esque masterpieces. Though Keith wasn't trained in any of these fields, he was the smartest man in the world, with a 240 IQ. Furthermore, he had Nancy. When Nancy met Keith, she was already respected in the corporate world for her supposed psychological expertise. Her Rolodex boasted executives from blue-chip companies like Con Edison and American Express. Keith was well aware of this when he convinced Nancy to open a business with him. It's likely he expected that her deep pool of corporate clients would become ESP's primary user base. His hopes were quickly dashed. While Nancy's clients respected her insights, one look at Keith's track record of pyramid schemes, and they decided that they wanted nothing to do with the smartest man in the world. Fortunately for Keith, he was the king of the pivot. He decided that if he couldn't offer high-powered executives his self-improvement technology, then he'd just go after the common man. The pitch was simple. Everybody wanted something better. Everyone wanted more. More success, more happiness, more of a sense that they were on the right path, doing all the right things. Keith provided the promise of this. If people just signed up for his classes, he would offer them the hope of more. According to Tony Natale's book, The Program, Keith's seductive pitch meant that ESP's first classes drew seekers often at a crossroads in their lives and thirsty for exactly the type of knowledge he seemed to have in spades. They were not easy marks. They were smart, capable people whose desire for self-improvement was sincere. Keith took their sincerity and charged them up to $7,500 for his self-improvement intensives, which lasted anywhere from 5 to 16 days. After he had their money safe in hand, class was in session. The very first lesson that ESP students learned was how to refer to Keith and Nancy. She was called Prefect, and he, Vanguard. Journalists Rebecca Sun and Scott Johnson wrote for The Hollywood Reporter that Keith adopted the title Vanguard from an arcade game in which the destruction of one's enemies increased one's power. In other words, the name functioned as an act of dominance. Once that was accepted, ESP students were primed for another type of dominion. It came in the form of colored sashes. Keith impressed upon his students the importance of hierarchy. Like Scientology's OT, or operating Thetan levels, ESP's ranking system was set in stone. Where a student fell in the group was immutably defined by the sashes members wore around their necks. A white sash meant a beginner student. Yellow sashes went to students who had paid for enough courses to ascend to coaching level. Orange sashes went to proctors, green to senior proctors all the way up the hierarchy to the so-called ethereal sash. Only one ESP member had improved his character enough to warrant it, Keith Ranieri. However, he promised his students that with enough lessons, they too could progress up the hierarchy. To move from one color rank to the next, a student first had to earn four stripes on their sash. 
so where Scientology offered its members the bridge to clear, Vanguard gave his students the stripe path to ethereal. However, the SASH ranking system didn't only provide students with a visual reminder of where they were in their journey to ethereal, it also immediately showed them where they stood relative to each other. This was important because Keith had several rules governing how a lower-ranked student was to interact with higher-ups. First, there was the special handshake. Normally, handshakes occur on a lateral plane. The hands are at equal height. But Keith dictated that ESP students, or espions as they sometimes refer to themselves, had to put their hand beneath that of a higher-ranked student whenever their two palms might meet. Secondly, there was the idea of paying tribute. Journalist Michael Friedman wrote for Forbes in 2003 that when a higher-ranking espion enters the room, lower-ranked espions must stand to show respect. They are taught to bow to one another and to vanguard. All of Keith's mandated rituals and insignias of rank played a very important role. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a study led by researcher Namki Kaudenberg, a sense of an us can emerge in the background of specific actions that individuals perform together. By giving his students a uniform system of dressing and interacting with each other, Keith created a sense of an us. In other words, he crafted a new group identity. Once students accepted their position as new members of an insular group, Keith set about reconstructing their worldview. Keith taught espions that the world was divided into two groups of people, parasites and producers. He explained that while all human beings were born parasitic, dependent on others for their survival, some humans remained in this stunted state. They were perennial parasites, forever feeding off the success of others to sustain themselves. On the other side of this binary was the self-sufficient producer. These people were independent and driven enough to earn their success, as opposed to leeching it from others. As Vanguard, the man with the ethereal sash, Keith held himself up as the ultimate producer. If students wanted to leave behind their parasitic state, they would have to throw themselves into ESP's curriculum wholeheartedly. The core mechanism of this curriculum were explorations of meaning, or EMs. During EM sessions, a coach would take a student through an analysis of a thought or behavior to find the root cause of the student's negative emotional responses. Once the origin was located, usually in a childhood memory or some other formative experience, the coach would help the student diffuse the power of the moment by asking them targeted questions. In this way, explorations of meaning were very similar to Scientology's auditing sessions. Keith promised that with enough explorations of meaning, students would destroy the root cause of the negative emotions holding them back from success. In other words, EMs would give them effective producer-like mindsets. Keith believed that if everybody had such a mindset, the world would be a better place. To that end, he also strongly encouraged his students to recruit. In fact, recruitment, not self-improvement through explorations of meaning, was the main requirement to move up the stripe path. And students were willing to do all of it. They went along with the strict hierarchy, the coerced explorations of oftentimes painful memories, and the pressure to recruit. 
all in the hopes that it would help them achieve their wildest dreams. They wanted to be Academy Award-winning actresses. They wanted to be successful entrepreneurs. They wanted to be ethereal. So they handed over their time, their money, and their minds. And just like that, 39-year-old Keith Raniere's new business was booming. Up next, ESP students discover the dark side of self-improvement. Now, back to the story. In the late 1990s, after establishing executive success programs in Albany, New York, Keith Raniere and his business partner, Nancy Salzman, started teaching their patented self-improvement curriculum. During these classes, students were taught how to resolve their negative emotional impulses to become happier, more successful people. They were also strongly encouraged to go out and recruit new students into the fold. Since he was their vanguard, Keith's students did exactly as he asked, none more effectively than Prefect herself. In 1999, Nancy encouraged her daughters, 19-year-old Michelle and 22-year-old Lauren, to try the classes. According to journalist E.J. Dixon for Rolling Stone magazine, a few years after joining ESP, Lauren began a sexual relationship with Keith. It's unclear whether her mother was immediately aware of this. After seamlessly pulling her family members into ESP, she moved on to recruiting her friends. Nancy convinced acquaintance Barbara Boucher to join the group in 2000. According to an article Barbara Boucher later wrote for FrankReport.com, when the 40-year-old took her first workshop, she was managing $90 million and grossing $900,000 annually in her job as a financial planner. Despite her enviable success, Barbara, like so many of ESP's early recruits, was going through a difficult time in her life. Barbara wrote for Frank Report that, at the time, her best friend had committed suicide, and she had just asked her husband for a divorce. It's no wonder, then, that she jumped at the chance to learn how to be happier from the smartest man in the world. After taking a couple of ESP classes, Barbara was hooked. Six months after joining ESP, she had entered into a romantic relationship with Keith Ranieri. However, her intimacy with Keith wasn't her sole draw to ESP. She was truly impressed with the material and believed that it could change her life. Barbara wasn't alone in this regard. Several other new recruits felt similarly passionate about Keith's curriculum, and soon he was offering intensives in Alaska, Manhattan, Seattle, Boston, and even Mexico. Edgar Boone, the son of a wealthy Mexican family, first heard of executive success programs while taking a similar self-improvement course called Life Skills. Perhaps seduced by Keith's purported credentials, Edgar decided to give the new program a try. According to Tony Natale's book, he quickly took to the classes in part because he was in love with Nancy Salzman's daughter, Michelle. Thereafter, Edgar became one of ESP's best recruiters south of the border. He brought in Anna Cristina Fox, the daughter of then-Mexican President Vicente Fox, Emiliano Salinas, the son of former Mexican President Carlos Salinas de Gortari, and Rosa Lara Junco, the daughter of the Mexican newspaper magnate Alejandro Junco. Despite the rapid expansion and recruitment, by 2002, trouble was brewing in ESP and Keith's aggressive tactics began to catch up with him. 
journalist Michael Friedman wrote that after sleepless nights and 17-hour days of ESP courses, a 28-year-old woman from a prominent Mexican family began to have hallucinations. Then she had a mental breakdown. Her experience wasn't an outlier. In Alaska, environmental consultant Kristen Snyder suffered an even worse fate. Tony Natale wrote that while taking a multi-day ESP course, Kristen began acting strange. She interrupted the classes with bizarre statements. She stopped sleeping because she believed Keith didn't need sleep and she wanted to emulate him. Kristen even called her parents and claimed responsibility for the Columbia Space Shuttle explosion. After days of this erratic behavior, one of ESP's proctors came to a decision. They didn't try to remedy Kristen's outbursts. They didn't integrate her negative emotional responses through their patented exploration of meaning technology. No, they simply ordered her to go away. According to the Alaska State Police, Kristen paddled a kayak into the middle of Resurrection Bay and then she drowned. Though the police never found her body, they discovered a suicide note. In it, Kristen wrote, I attended a course called Executive Success Programs. My emotional center of the brain was killed. I still have feeling in my external skin, but my internal organs are rotting. If you find me or this note, I am sorry, life. I didn't know I was already dead. The disturbing contents of Kristen's suicide note seem to suggest that she was suffering some sort of psychosis. This might have been caused by her unwillingness to sleep. According to researchers Flavie Waters and Vivian Chu, prolonged sleep deprivation can cause psychotic symptoms, from simple visual somatosensory misperceptions to hallucinations and delusions, ending in a condition resembling acute psychosis. Maybe a lack of sleep did cause Kristen's symptoms, but it's important to note that the 28-year-old woman in Mexico also suffered a mental break, and there was no evidence she stopped sleeping in a bid to emulate Keith. This suggests that perhaps there was something baked into ESP's courses that caused these episodes. After all, ESP's explorations of meaning made students hyper-focused on their most negative emotions and memories in the hopes that they could rid them of their power. Perhaps this fixation had the opposite effect, causing those emotions to feel all-encompassing to the point of agony. If there was something dangerous about ESP's methodology, Keith Ranieri didn't care to root it out. According to the program, Keith claimed that Kristen Snyder faked her suicide because she was involved in a drug smuggling ring. Needless to say, this conspiracy theory had no basis in fact. Neither did some of the news stories that Keith began to spin about himself. In the early 2000s, Keith started to claim he was a renunciate who eschewed all sexual and romantic attachments. However, nothing could be further from the truth. After all, his sexual appetite was so voracious that a few years earlier, Tony Natale had to barricade herself in the closet to stop him from raping her. Keith's habits didn't suddenly change overnight. In her book, The Program, Tony Natale wrote that Keith was having sex with everyone in his inner circle. He was having sex with Pam K. Fritz, Kristen Keefe, and Karen Unterreiner, his former roommates, and Barbara Boucher. He was having sex with Prefect, Nancy Salzman, and her daughter, Lauren Salzman. In addition to this sexual gluttony, 
Keith continued his penchant of preying on teenage girls. In early 2000, 16-year-old Daniela Flores' parents gifted her an ESP class. They were Vanguard converts, and they wanted their smart young daughter to benefit from the teachings that had so resonated with them. Before the 16-day intensive class, Daniela had dreams of attending Harvard University and becoming a scientist so that she could change the world. During the intensive, according to journalists Emanuela Grinberg and Sonia Mogi, Daniela was taught a mathematical equation that purported to prove that the world was going to end in 10 to 15 years. As a result, she was told that her efforts to better the world were pointless because the only way to change the planet was through ESP. This likely demoralized Daniela so that when Lauren Salzman asked her to forsake the rest of her formal education and be tutored by Vanguard instead, she agreed. But when Daniela arrived in Albany, Keith didn't do much teaching. In fact, he largely ignored her. So, according to Grinberg and Mogi's article, the brilliant student cleaned offices to stay busy. One year later, the smartest man in the world's attention finally honed in on her. But it wasn't to teach her science. Instead, 42-year-old Keith kissed 17-year-old Daniela for the first time. While he brought up the prospect of having sex, he allowed that she was too young. However, a few days after she turned 18, Keith apparently decided that their over 20-year age difference was no big deal. So, Grinberg and Mogi wrote, he performed oral sex on the 18-year-old on a dirty mattress in an empty office. According to the program, Daniela, the brilliant student with dreams of Harvard, spent the next couple of years doing data entry, cleaning houses of high-ranking espions, and performing oral sex on command for Vanguard. In part one, we covered how Keith embodied several traits on Robert Hare's psychopathy checklist. He demonstrated a grandiose sense of self, manipulative tendencies, a lack of empathy, and a penchant for pathological lying. Keith's comfort with preying on a teenage Daniela, as well as his rotating roster of sexual partners, further works to reinforce this hypothesis. And according to clinical psychologist Seth Myers, psychopaths don't engage in promiscuous intercourse because they love sex so much. It's more about boosting their ego, obtaining power, or defending against the boredom that psychopaths often feel. This suggests that perhaps Keith pursued predatory sexual relationships to feed his bottomless need for adoration and entertainment, not just to satisfy his lust. Even worse, during his numerous sexual encounters, Keith refused to wear a condom. He defended this proclivity by alleging that sex was a form of energy exchange, his ejaculations acting as some sort of heavenly gift to the women who received them. Back on Earth, his refusal to wear protection meant that some of his partners got pregnant. As a solution to this problem, Tony Natale wrote that Pam Kafritz, one of Keith's former roommates and most loyal acolytes, shepherded so many women to Planned Parenthood for an abortion that the staff recognized her. Despite the abortions, the espion psychotic breaks, and Keith's habit of preying on his barely legal students, in the early 2000s, ESP had a respectable public face. Perhaps it was this sheen of respectability that helped lure in Sarah Bronfman, 
the billionaire heiress to the Seagram alcohol empire. In 2002, 25-year-old Sarah Bronfman's four-month marriage to Irish horse jockey Ronan Clark was already on the rocks. Maybe her fast-failing union was what caused the usually bubbly party girl to engage in some introspection. Whatever the reason, when Bronfman family friend Susan White recommended ESP, Sarah agreed to give the self-improvement classes a try. In the past, Sarah had been somewhat nomadic in her career pursuits. She conceded to a brief undergraduate stint at NYU and then opened a skydiving business in the Caribbean. But after so many wayward years, Sarah found her rock in ESP. She was so passionate about the curriculum that she encouraged her sister, Claire, to give the classes a try. Where Sarah was blonde and bubbly, her sister Claire was dark-haired and serious. Where Sarah flitted from country to country in search of a passion, in 2002, Claire was already a Grand Prix-winning equestrian. Their differences were perhaps why Claire didn't take to ESP as easily as Sarah had. According to Vanity Fair journalist Susanna Andrews, during her first ESP class, Claire had a defiant air about her. She was angry at the world. She would tell people she had decided to spend the rest of her life with horses because she didn't like human beings. And that just wouldn't do for Keith, because Sarah and Claire weren't just rich, they were filthy rich. Their father, Edgar Bronfman, had an estimated net worth of $2.6 billion, and each of the girls boasted multi-million dollar trust fund balances. Keith wasn't going to let either one of them slip through his fingers so easily. Early on in her time with ESP, Keith convened a series of one-on-one -on -one meetings with the recalcitrant Claire. We don't know what they discussed during these private sessions, but the end result was clear. Claire was just as enthusiastic about ESP as her sister was, perhaps more so, because according to several former members of the group, Claire apparently fell in love with Keith. With both minnows on his hook, 43-year-old Keith set his sights on the white whale. In 2003, he pushed Claire and Sarah to set up a meeting with their father, Edgar. This was a difficult ask. After Edgar's divorce from their mother, Sarah and Claire had spent the bulk of their childhood living apart from the Bronfman riches. They hadn't grown up in New York society like their older siblings, nor had they attended fancy private schools. And while they did have access to impressive trust funds of their own, they likely resented their father for his early absence from their lives. So when Keith asked them to reach out to Edgar, they hesitated. But Keith was nothing if not persuasive, and eventually, he got the girls to agree. Eager to fix his strained relationship with his daughters, Edgar jumped at the chance to participate in their passion. He signed up for one of ESP's specially designed VIP classes. The course was taught by Prefect herself, and it carried a price tag of $10,000. Fortunately, that was chump change to a billionaire. Not only did Edgar hand over his money easily, he loved the classes, so much so that he began flying Nancy out to his estate in Virginia so she could give him one-on-one -on -one ESP therapy sessions. For Keith, the future couldn't have looked brighter. Not only did he now have a billionaire amongst his clientele, but in 2003, Executive Success Programs boasted an impressive 3,700 members. However, there was one downside to Keith's good fortune. 
The tax man came calling. According to the program, the profits of ESP were such that Keith began strategizing how to avoid paying taxes on his wealth. To that end, he decided to fold the company into an umbrella corporation to shield himself from direct ownership. Keith called his new venture Nexium. With a new name and a fast-growing business, 43-year-old Keith received yet another piece of good news. When he discovered that Forbes magazine wanted to do a feature on him, he eagerly anticipated the article, likely believing that it would usher in more stratospheric success. He was wrong. The Forbes article was a disaster of such magnitude, it threatened his relationship with a billionaire, putting Keith's whole empire at stake. Up next, Keith Ranieri fields accusations that he's running a cult. Now, back to the story. In 2003, 43-year-old Keith Ranieri was finally living up to his outsized expectations. He turned his self-improvement business, ESP, into a financial success, boasting thousands of members. And in the process, he'd managed to attract an elite clientele with a billionaire amongst its ranks. So when Keith learned that Forbes magazine wanted to do a feature on him, he likely viewed it as a just reward. But in his excitement, he made a grievous mistake. In the mid-2000s, Keith was juggling intense sexual and emotional relationships with multiple women. This was no easy feat. Each of Keith's girls required their own special touch. Fortunately, he was preternaturally adept at sensing and meeting their needs. However, in the excitement of granting the Forbes journalist access to his inner circle, Keith failed to adequately manage the feelings of Claire Bronfman. According to Tony Natale, Claire had always been overshadowed by her bubblier, prettier older sister, Sarah. Nexium was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be the one place where Claire was at the forefront. She believed in Nexium so ardently that she'd given up her dreams of being a champion equestrian to focus on the group full-time. Despite her sacrifices, it seemed to Claire that Keith and Nancy were making a bigger fuss of her older sister to the Forbes journalist. Feeling overlooked and underappreciated, Claire decided to do something about it. In a reported act of retaliation, she called her father, Edgar, and told him that Keith had borrowed $2 million from her. With that piece of information, the wool was officially yanked off of Edgar Bronfman's eyes. Perhaps he'd wanted to believe that Keith was the ethical guru he presented himself to be. Perhaps in desiring a deeper connection with his daughters, Edgar had even convinced himself that he was getting something invaluable from the $10,000 classes. However, once he heard about the $2 million loan, Edgar had his own comment for the Forbes journalist. He said, I think it's a cult. And that wasn't all. The Forbes feature was rotten with damaging information about Keith. One section discussed the collapse of his alleged pyramid scheme, Consumers Byline. Another part featured details about the psychotic breaks certain espions had suffered after taking his courses. However, it was the Forbes journalist, Michael Friedman, who delivered the death knell. He branded Keith a corporate Svengali, whose impenetrable jargon-filled teachings were either pure genius or sheer horse manure. Instead of addressing the parts of the article that called his behavior into question, Keith honed in on Edgar Bronfman's quote. 
or rather, he turned on Claire Bronkman. He was furious that she told her father about the loan. Perhaps by Keith's demand, both Claire and Sarah stopped talking to their father. But that wasn't enough for Keith. He accused Claire of committing an ethical breach of violating Nexium's mission statement. Allegedly in love with Keith, Claire was desperate to get back into his good graces. In other words, she was exactly where Keith wanted her. In late 2003, Keith convinced Claire and Sarah to turn over the management of their assets to fellow Nexium member Barbara Boucher. Eager to please Keith, both Claire and her sister agreed. After all, Barbara was a successful financial planner, so she certainly had the skills to manage their account. However, the sisters didn't know that the person who was supposed to be looking out for their best fiduciary interests was sleeping with their guru. Perhaps this conflict of interest was why Barbara didn't raise any alarms when Keith convinced the girls to start spending their money at a startling rate. Their expenses ran the gamut. There was the $1 million the girls shelled out to refurbish Prefect's mansion. Then they paid $1.7 million for Nexium's headquarters and $2.3 million for a Nexium horse farm. The girls even purchased a private jet and made it available to Nexium's higher-ups. But one of their most outrageous expenses by far was the $20 million check the girls donated no questions asked, to a Nexium-controlled foundation. Despite this gigantic outlay, Keith wasn't satisfied, largely because he didn't just see Claire Bronfman as a piggy bank for pleasurable pursuits. He also viewed her as a human war chest. According to New York Times journalist Barry Meyer, Claire Bronfman was Keith's greatest legal weapon. She financed and aggressively pursued long-running lawsuits against Nexium's enemies. She filed criminal complaints against defectors from the group and even used lawyers to threaten its critics. More ominous, Keith reportedly used Claire's money to buy opposition research on his enemies. He paid for dossiers of extensive, sometimes incriminating information on everyone from local politicians to his ex-girlfriend, Tony Natale. However, weaponizing Claire Bronfman's money was far from the worst thing Keith Raniere did with her millions. The worst thing he did was disguised as an amazing opportunity. In 2005, 44-year-old Keith told Sarah and Claire that he devised an ingenious mathematical formula that would allow him to make millions in the commodities market. Since Keith was the smartest man in the world, the Bronfman sisters readily allowed him to make commodity trades with their funds. What followed was a bloodbath. Keith burned through $65 million of their money, losing it all on extreme, ill-thought-out trades in the commodities market. When questioned, Keith had a ready explanation for his losses. He blamed their father, Edgar, Keith claimed that Edgar was in cahoots with the commodities clearing firm to steal the girl's inheritance money. He said that Edgar was the root cause of his massive losses. Both Sarah and Claire believed him. They needed to believe him. Sarah had been directionless before joining Nexium. Even her friends viewed her as an airhead. Nexium gave her substance. It gave her purpose. And as for Claire, she was allegedly in love with Keith. With those incentives, it's understandable why the Bronfman sisters swallowed their guru's improbable tale. 
However, they might not have been so easy to convince had they been aware that this wasn't the first time Keith had lost millions in the commodities market. In fact, just a few years earlier, he'd blown Barbara Boucher's entire life savings on similarly speculative trades. Keith's decision to essentially gamble with his followers' funds might have been yet another demonstration of his psychopathic traits. According to Hare's checklist, psychopaths have a persistent need for stimulation, poor behavioral controls, and impulsivity. These three factors help to explain why there's oftentimes a correlation between psychopathy and gambling addictions. Strangely enough, there's another trait on Hare's list that psychopaths unilaterally share. Namely, they're known to live parasitic lifestyles. Keith warned his students that the world was comprised of producers and parasites. Though he held himself up as an exemplary producer, his conduct proves he was nothing but a parasite. He had sex with several of the women in his inner circle to satiate his need for adoration. And he blew both Barbara and the Bronfman's money in the commodities market to feed his hunger for stimulation. Despite the predatory nature of his actions, the female members of Nexium were so in Keith's thrall that they couldn't see him for the parasite he was. Furthermore, whereas leeches fell off their victims' bodies when they were sated with blood, Keith was insatiable. And soon, he decided to expand his feeding pool to grow Nexium's footprint. Keith did this by creating a new program specifically devoted to female empowerment called Jeunesse. According to Scott Johnson and Rebecca Sun's article for The Hollywood Reporter, in late 2006, several dozen people filed into a hotel conference room in Vancouver, Canada, for a two-day introduction to Jeunesse. The program was billed as a women's movement within Nexium. Though Nexium had maintained a Vancouver outpost for a few months, there had been no Canadian gathering as esteemed as this one. In attendance that day were the members of Nexium's elite. Both Sarah and Claire Bronfman had flown into town on their private jet. Furthermore, Prefect Nancy Salzman and her daughter Lauren Salzman were also in attendance. Though the weekend intensive was supposedly about teaching Nexium's ideas about female empowerment, in reality, there were other motives at play. The upper echelons of Nexium had descended upon the unremarkable conference room in Vancouver because of one specific person, Allison Mack. When 46-year-old Keith Raniere learned that the fan-favorite CW actress planned to attend the program, he'd sent his shrewdest and most impressive members to lure her into the fold. After all, Keith's enterprises had always benefited from the incorporation of talented women. Nexium's curriculum was built off of Nancy Saltzman's life work. The organization's operations were funded by the Bronfman sisters' millions. And in Allison Mack, Keith saw a celebrity spokesperson. According to an interview given to the Hollywood Reported journalist by a former Nexium member, celebrity recruitment might have been another cue Keith took from Scientology. Allison would be their Tom Cruise figure, a recognizable face that lent credibility to the cult, a promise of the success to be found by following ESP. In 2006, 23-year-old Allison Mack was unaware of any of these machinations. All she saw was a group of young, creative people who seemed to welcome her with open arms. 
It's no surprise then that at the end of the weekend session, when Lauren Salzman invited Allison back to Albany to meet Keith, she eagerly agreed. As she climbed into the Bronfman's private jet to fly to New York, Allison had no idea that the decision would center down a dark path from which there would be no return. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with the third episode of our four-part special. We'll cover Keith's toxic relationship with Allison Mack, which culminated in the Hollywood actress allegedly branding women for his satisfaction. For more information on Keith Raniere, amongst the many sources we used, we found the program Inside the Mind of Keith Raniere and the Rise and Fall of Nexium by Tony Natale with Chet Hardin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Abiageli Ademegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 